0: You know, game management. You know that's something that we're we're going to continue to build around here. Uh, knowing this, you know, know what's what the situation is. You know, I think there were some times where we had pucks and we didn't get them in deep. You got to look who's on the ice, but you know, we're getting better. Um, that's a positive.
1: That is Rick Talkett, of course, speaking after the Canucks' win in Edmonton on Saturday. Welcome back to Halford and Brov, Jamie Dodd here filling in. For Halford, Halford and Bruff Brough brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Uh, visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Also brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle. You get paid at 1170 Powell Street. We are coming to you live from the
0: Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 2,500
1: five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. 650-650 is the dunbar Lumber text line. You can send your thoughts in about uh, the Canucks' hot start to the season. 2-0, both wins over the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, we'll go through some interesting stats from the first couple of games as well. But right before we took the break, uh, we played the latest update from uh, NHL insider Elliot Friedman on the 32 Thoughts podcast, which just released this morning on the Connor Garland situation and echoing some of what he had to say on Saturday, but again, you know, detailing the Canucks would be willing to take term uh, if they really like a player that they're getting back, you know, aiming to clear that one to 2 million in cap space potentially. And also talking about the nature of the agent change, which is a really interesting wrinkle to this story for a player under contract, not a pending UFA, like not looking at a big decision coming up in the near future to change agents right before the season I think that caught a lot of people by surprise and Mm -hmm. one of the things that Friedman said there was this we might have just heard about this you know the day before the season started but it sounds like it was something that had been percolating before that because the Canucks knew there was a chance they were going to be right up uh, against the cap and you know, I think it's kind of been forgotten now because the Canucks are 2-0 and and Connor Garland scored the first goal of the season and all that. There was a really negative fan reaction against Connor Garland. I think there was the perception that he had kind of blindsided the Canucks with a trade request on the eve yeah. of the season. And hired
0: a new agent to do it. Yeah,
1: but I think if you're kind of reading the tea leaves, and no one's come out and said this exactly, but the, the what I'm kind of thinking is... Garland knows the situation. The team's probably been active talking about Connor Garland trades for a while now. Yeah. He knows that. If anything, it's kind of like, okay, you guys are trying to trade me, or you'd be, assert- at the very least, you'd be very open to trading me. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't my agent, my new agent, get involved? And we try to speed this up a little
0: bit. Well, and also, if I'm Connor Garland, I want my agent involved so I can maybe go somewhere where I want to go. Yeah. Right. If your, try agent, to your agent is involved, you'd be like, Hey uh, don't call Columbus <laughs> or don't call you know anywhere where I w- might want to go. I mean, hopefully he didn't say that about Columbus because that could be a match yeah. for for the the Canucks and Connor Garland. but um you know I, I think i I'd still be curious to know the entire story mm-hmm. because um, the timing of it was curious, right? And I'd like to know exactly when and why. He fired his old agent. Like maybe there might be a completely different reason for you know why he fired his agent. We asked Ollie Wall of this on Friday. He said he knew, but he wasn't going to say. <laughs> and then I texted it after. And That's a good I, answer. And I said, uh, so what's the reason? Why did he fire his old agent? And he said my lips are sealed. And I said, and I replied, uh, first time ever. So um, you know, with you know, we we don't know the full story, but I'd like to know it because. You know, I think it would tell us a lot. And you want to be fair to a guy like Connor Garland because you're right. The fan reaction was super negative. It was like Connor Garland uh, waited until like two days before the season started and then requested a trade. But we all know the Canucks have been trying to, yeah, deal these guys. I mean, he's in the same boat as Besser, right? They were they needed to clear cap space, and they were the obvious choices. And I think it's very, very interesting if we if we remember back on the press conference that the Canucks held before training camp, the same press conference where Jim Rutherford said, um, "If everything goes right, we can be a playoff team." Like that was the main takeaway from that press conference. But he also said. We've still got a few contracts, yep. one or two contracts that I don't like. And everyone was immediately like, oh, Tyler Myers, mm-hmm. right? But I'm been. Garland was one of well, them, yeah, right? The because with, they were actively working on it. Yeah, at the and time. the thing
1: with Tyler Myers is he expires this year, and like yeah, look, they're not worried you, about him. Would you? Yeah, that's the thing. Like he can't be that high on your priority list. One, he's playing in your top four, <laughs> so it's like he's playing a significant role for you right now. Yeah, you would love to bring in somebody else and have that not be the case, but he's still playing a really po- important role for you, and he expires. So mm-hmm. who cares? At a certain point, right? Like yeah. he, that's built in. You've already. You've already dealt with the bad parts of Tyler Myers' contract. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like now you just wait it out. He's you, almost a, he's you an can asset see now. See the finish line. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. I don't think it was Tyler Myers. I think it was Garland and probably still Brock. Like, we don't want to talk about it now because he's having a great start mm-hmm. of the season, but probably Brock Besser. Yeah. As well, considering his salary and the fact that they tried to trade him.
0: Okay, so I came up with a number of stats that helps explain the Canucks solid start and Let's go through some of these now. We can dip into the Dunbar Lumber text line later in the segment. So text in 650-650. The first number is perhaps the most obvious number, and that is 940, and that is the Canucks team save percentage. So it's been split between Demko Mm -hmm. and Casey DeSmith. A team is always going to look good when they're getting the goaltending. And I think the Canucks are playing much better in front of their goalies, but there's no question – that Thatcher Demko was solid yeah in game 1 and then he had to leave um and then Casey DeSmith gets the start on Saturday and he was he was excellent like he yeah he allowed 3 goals but um you know he battled hard all night and i remember when the Canucks made the Casey DeSmith trade I was kind of like They've now checked off all the boxes for me on things that they had to do this offseason because yeah. the number one thing was um, shaking up the defense, but also addressing the penalty kill. But that last one that I had, I was like, are they really going into the season with Seelovs and Spencer, and Spencer Martin, Martin? Martin as your candidates for backup goalie? Like I just I can't believe that. And I think I think it's a huge risk. And I feel like we should be talking about this more. And then they went out and got Casey DeSmith, who's by no means like this guaranteed goalie that's going to give you the types of performances that he gave Saturday in Edmonton. But he at least had, you know, tangible NHL He's experience. He's an
1: established NHL backup, yes. I think it's fair to say. And yes. I think, you know, you're, you're seeing not just in his performance in Edmonton on Saturday, but I think even talk's decision to start him, I thought was really fascinating. Now, maybe there's some lingering flu illness or whatever going on with Thatcher Demko, but when you think about it, you know, your starting goalie plays that well in the season opener. You win that big. You got a couple of days off, mm-hmm. right? It's not like, oh, we're worried about travel or back-to-backs or anything like that. I was pretty surprised to see Casey DeSmith get the call. I think it was a uh, a gutsy call by Talkett. I think it was a good one because... To me, you're playing the long game there, right? You're already thinking about how can we limit Thatcher Demko's workload? How can we keep him fresh Mm -hmm. throughout the season? But I don't know if Talkett. would make that call if it was Spencer Martin instead of Casey DeSmith, right? Or Archer, she loves instead of, right? Like yeah, it becomes totally. so much be easier. Like,
0: Drink some more water, Thatcher. <laughs> it becomes, <yeah>. Hydrate, buddy. <laughs> You're going in there.
1: Take some time Tylenol. Yeah. Uh, it becomes so much easier <laughs> to make those decisions and to prioritize keeping your starter fresh when you mm. have a legitimate backup. And again, it's great that they got the win, but I think even the fact that Talkett felt comfortable to go to him in that game is like that's that move paying dividends right away.
0: Okay, here's my my next number. Nine, number nine, number of Canucks who've scored a goal already this season. So they've scored 12 goals. Mm-hmm. Bester's the only guy with more than one goal. He had four in game one. Otherwise, you're looking at like balanced scoring. Yeah across the board yeah the guys that are supposed to score have scored like Kuzmenko and JT Patterson. and and, and Pedersen but also you're getting goals from the likes of Dakota Joshua and the most important goal of the season might have been that one by Sam Lafferty which was so impressive in just the way he used his speed and strength and frankly courage to go to the net and score a very important game-winning goal for the Canucks. Uh, So nine Canucks have already scored this season.
1: And Stunika in there, Niels Hooglander in there, right? So when you look at it, I mean, I think technically the fourth line – on Saturday was Lafferty, Hoaglander, and and You get goals from all three mm-hmm. of those guys, <laughs> which yeah. is pretty and P- impressive. And PD played with a bunch of yeah, them, PD too. Yeah, PD did. He was out there on the ice for um, a lot of it.
0: And in a related story, four power play goals for the Canucks on nine tries. Everyone's been talking about the PK, and rightly so. It mm-hmm. looks vastly improved, even though the Oilers did score three power play goals over the first two games, like – That's fine against the Edmonton Oilers with the amount of power plays that the Canucks gave the Oilers. um, Some of them deserved it. Some of them were pretty soft calls, I thought, in my opinion. But the Oilers did get them, including a five on three that the Oilers had and failed to score. But perhaps we're overlooking how good the power play has looked. Four goals already on the season on yep. nine trades, so you're almost at 50%.
1: And I think it's easy to think of it as, like, yeah, we, of course, we know the power play was going to be good. That's mm-hmm. not a big surprise, yeah. but one, a lot of the power play production came from Bo Horvath yes. last year, so yes. they're integrating somebody new, and Rick Tockett, again, as we talk about kind of gutsy decisions by Rick Tockett, he really went back to the drawing board Reshaping and restructuring. Oh, I love the movement on the power play. How that power play was going to operate. And that was a risk because it was a really good power play. Mm -hmm. It would have been really easy for Rick Talkett to look at it and think we have so many other things to (laughs) work on on this team. Yeah. I'm not going to risk upsetting one of the only things that was dependable last year. But
0: don't you think that was be- that would be almost like fun work for the players?
1: Yeah, it's almost like the carrot at the end of yeah, the stick. Yeah, yeah,
0: like, like I, I would think that a power play with movement where you're encouraging guys not to yep. just stay in their spot and to be creative and you know, like I loved what Talkett said It's like this whole thing about like that's my spot. He hates that, mm. right? I hate that too. Like, why would you make something predictable? Yeah. Right. If it's Ovi, it's a different story. Like Ovi, you can do whatever you want. like, you're the greatest goal scorer in NHL history. Um, I'm going to defer to you. But I like a power play where, oh, where's Petey? Oh, he's here now? There, that, Now he's there? Like you need to have movement to open up passing lanes, to open up shooting lanes. You don't want to be predictable. Why would you want to be predictable?
1: And I think especially when you have players like Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes, and I throw JT Miller and Andre Kuzmenko into the mix there as well. Like these are really high hockey IQ guys. Mm-hmm. Like Elias Patterson, he's going to have an incredible sense of when to pop up in a different space, when to stay home. Right? Like you don't want you to want take him away. thinking, not just exactly. standing. You want him yeah. to, waiting for the one timer. You want him to be able to use his ability to process the game at a higher level than almost anyone else.
0: So speaking of Petey. He already has six points, a goal and five assists. And if you look at his advanced stats, his expected goals at five on five, they're rid- it's ridiculously high. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what it is. It might be like eighty percent or something,
1: seventy-three percent of expected goals. Which put it to put it in context, like they got worked in that metric on Saturday, yes, because periods two and three were all Edmonton. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it's even more remarkable when you look at it. Petey's at 73. His line mates, or her regular line mates, Garland and Kuzmenko, are at 58 and 57. Nobody else at the Canucks is above 50% right now. Yeah. Because they all got shelled. Yeah. And that's fine. Like, Edmonton was chasing the game. It's not a criticism. You shouldn't
0: be looking too much at these no. stats anywhere but early just, in the season. But It, it
1: puts into relief yeah. how impressive Pedersen has been that even as the rest of the team got completely <laughs> snowed under yeah. for 40 minutes on Saturday, his numbers are still absolutely outrageous. And he was
0: playing with all sorts of different line mates. Yeah. So talking, talking, it was joking after the game. He said he pretty much played with everyone. Um, let's talk about, about Philip Horonic because he played almost 24 minutes Saturday against Edmonton. Um, and at even strength, he's playing more than Quinn Hughes. What have you thought of Horonic's game so far? Yeah, I've liked it. He's yeah. been
1: good. And um, you know, it's a nice, it's been a nice fit with Quinn Hughes so far. I think the big test is going to be, when he's away from Quinn Hughes and he's asked to carry his own pair, whether yes. that's with Ian Cole or Carson Soucy at some point, I'm not saying he can't do it, but I think that's when...
0: When Quinn Hughes is with Andrew Peake.
1: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yes. right. Once we get Andrew Peake in here. But I think that's when you're really going to see if the trade pays dividends or how many dividends mm-hmm. it pays. Is Okay, do you have a situation now where it's not just you can load up your top two defensemen and have a really good pair, right. but can you split them apart and have two really good pairs that are really effective.
0: So um, this is a thing that I've been hammering on about. Um, I think block shots have got a bad name because block shots Mm. have been used so much to um, almost describe if you've got, if you've, if you're blocking a lot of shots, that means that, that you're playing in your own end too much, but shot blocking is a skill. And there are many, many times in a game where you need a shot to be blocked. And, um, that is a reason they brought in a guy like Ian Cole who already has eight block shots on the season. And I think that's worth noting because there was talk from this Canucks management about needing guys who were willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting. Because what does that say about the team that they had in previous seasons? Mm -hmm. Did they feel that a guy like maybe a certain guy that they spent a lot of money to pay to go away wasn't actually willing to get into a shooting lane and block shots? We all remember Chris Tanev and Alex Edler, very willing to block shots. And by the end of the tenure, it kind of turned into a negative because there would be times where Tanev and Edler were just like hanging on you know by their by their nails basically you know just blocking shots and it was kind of like you know yeah it's admirable but it doesn't also, say much about the team they're right they're also
1: playing 50 games a year cuz they're <laughs> cuz they're constantly so constantly yeah. getting
0: hurt but like you do need guys to block the shots like that's just that's part of hockey now yeah you know back in the day you know when al McInnes was shooting from the point the message to the, the penalty killers was like, get out of the way. Like, first of all, he might kill you, but also like, <laughs> y- y- you'd almost want to be like, you want to let your goalie see it, right? That's yeah. not how the game is played anymore. There's no like, you want to let the goalie see it. You want to get in front of the puck and block it.
1: Well, it's a funny thing with block shots because, as you alluded to, if you're, if you're like forty games in, you're like bragging that your team leads the league in block shots. That's probably bad. It's that's like, well, bad. You should try yeah, to get it. You absolutely. should get the puck some more and, yeah. and stop letting the other team just launch pucks at your net. But in any individual moment, if the other team is getting ready to shoot, yeah, block the shot. Like that's mm-hmm. way better than letting it go through to the goalie if you know how to do it and you're not just screening the goalie or or whatever. Like so, it does matter and. You know, that's the thing. You look at the players they really prioritize bringing in, and obviously Ian Cole. We haven't had a chance to see Carson Soucy yet, but Pew Suter is another guy who stood out, you know, not just with shot blocking, but the way he uses his stick to break yeah, up plays. good sticks. Guys who are just have a really high defensive hockey IQ. Teddy Bluger hasn't made his debut, but he falls mm-hmm. into that category as well. I think that all goes together with the shot blocking. It's just understanding, one, the commitment, but also just understanding the defensive game at a high level. Protecting the front
0: of the net. Watch yeah. watch Ian Cole with his stick protecting the front of the net. Like, he makes it very difficult to make those seam passes in front of the net. And that's what the Oilers' power play is all about, right? Like, their whole mm. idea, their whole idea is to have some misdirection to set up the East-West pass to dry settle and the one-timer, right? It yeah. works a lot because they have, you know, when McDavid's
1: Well, he can skate downhill. Skating downhill
0: on you, and you're like, oh, I I, I should probably pay attention to this guy. Then everyone's like, you know, his idea is he's got two options. He's either going to shoot and score, or he's going to slide it across to Sidle for the one-timer.
1: And it did work in game one, right? That was the goal that they scored. The wild thing about the Oilers' power play, too, is that Dreisaitl is such a good shooter, he can go to such an undangerous area. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like normally you would not be worried about a player from <laughs> right. over there. So it's yeah. like he can shoot from almo- the goal line. It's like, honestly, yeah, we're not we're crazy. not used to like taking away that pass because it's like what? You're gonna send a pass like into the corner, he's gonna have like one degree of net to shoot on, yeah. but he's so good he can still score from there. But yeah, the Canucks did a pretty good job of making that a lot more difficult than it normally is for the Oilers. Okay.
0: Uh let's uh Answer a few questions into the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, here's one: Is Matt Irwin not an option for the sixth spot? Juelson
1: looks lost. I mean, he didn't get much of a run. No, he didn't. They brought him in as a veteran. I, I going into training camp, I would have said, "Oh yeah, he's almost a lock to be the seventh defenseman." If he if he was a right shooting defenseman, he'd Maybe. probably be in there. Right? Yeah, but I mean, they didn't. I don't. Just based on how they used him and when he got sent down, it didn't feel. I don't feel like the coaching staff saw a lot there.
0: Uh, here's a big question: What are the thoughts on when Pedersen might extend? Has he made any statements on if he wants to stay in Vancouver? You should ask him.
1: Sorry, is this <laughs> is this a real question? Did yeah. Somebody get, waking up, from did uh, someone
0: not not not? Yeah, I mean, hey listen. guys, has
1: anyone talked about? Uh, did you guys know he's he's out of contract after this year? It's not, not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, you never know. You never know, right? but I mean, it but doesn't. Like, nothing here's look. Nothing that has been said or hinted at or reported suggests that it's happening anytime soon. Yeah. That doesn't mean it couldn't. Right. But there's just no if you're like
0: In ten games into the season when PD has 60 points and we're really like, <laughs> uh should we talk contract now? Because this is hey, getting hey, this you, is getting uh... bad. This is getting bad for us.
1: <laughs> but like it doesn't mean it can't happen, but if you're trying to like read the tea leaves and find the secret uh the secret like messages that are saying that Elias Patterson is gonna sign. They're just not there. Right now. So Mm -hmm. it's not going to be for a while.
0: I love this. This this is someone who's upset about my comments about shot blocking. He said, So get uh, Babbage, Diddick, Lume, and tell them they didn't block shots. (laughs) Remember Craig Ludwig? They block shots. Like, I'm just telling you that. As a tactical thing. There, it's, it's, it's way more uh, part of the game than it is now. And I do remember Craig Ludwig. I remember his shin pads. They were responsible for a lot of those block shots. Yeah, block, blocking shots has always been part of the game, but defensively, <laughs> go watch a game from the 80s. Like, the details oh. are not even close to what they are right now. It's pond hockey. It's like, pond hockey like, like I talk so much about the nineteen eighty seven Canada Cup. Like, go watch that. There are plays that these guys make that would get them benched if they played <laughs> now, right? There's not a lot of back checking. There's just it's just it's a completely different game. It's been coached up. And th- if if you go and ask Gerald Diddick or Yurke Lume or Craig Ludwig if you get him on the show, you know, like, how different is it now compared to then? It'd be like, it's very different.
1: Yes. Yeah, I don't think you're uh, insulting the old timers by saying that no. Game, I mean, the game has changed. I loved
0: the old time hockey. I thought yeah. it, I, I, You know, I th- I think in a lot of ways the NHL had a lot more heart when those guys were playing. But the shot blocking is just something that has to happen now, and there's a lot of focus put on staying in shooting lanes, staying in passing lanes, and getting in the way.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And as you said, just in general, like the focus on there's – there's just so much more coaching now in the game, and the, it's such an emphasis on uh, what the coaches want you to do than there ever was before.
0: Uh, here's a text from the Canavar. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Uh, did you guys see hopefully the weekend – Hopefully nothing bad. <laughs> hopefully nothing bad. Did you guys see the weekend the 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 two Canucks uh, right shot uh, defenseman prospects had Tom Willander and Hunter – is it – Burst Br- Br- Brustevich. who leads the OHL in points uh for all players. Okay, he doesn't still, but Brustevich is having, a, having v- a great a very great start. good start, and Willander is having a good start in his uh college career. Um we all know about Willander, but what's the story with
1: brustevich <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well is like it's interesting because he produced really well last year in his mm-hmm. draft year in the OHL for a right shot defenseman, and yet he slips to the Canucks in the third round. I think it's a pretty typical story of you know, well, yeah, well, he scored a lot of points, but we have questions about the defensive zone, and you know, we'll have to work right. on that. And he's,
0: he's was not- he almost phenomish though when he was young? Like, was know. he one of those guys that have been talking? No? I don't think oh, okay. so. I don't think he was like, you right.
1: know, uh, the next uh, whoever. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sean Day or whatever. Or Aaron Eckblad or whatever. No, I don't think he was that. I think it was just, you know, he put up like really good, but not generational or anything numbers and people had questions about uh his defensive acumen and his size he's six feet so he's not tiny but he's not like going to be a big punishing guy Mm -hmm. and and he falls but i mean typically when you look at guys who score like he do he does as a defenseman in the ohl not that they all hit but the future is pretty good the future there's a good chance that he could actually become like even a top four defenseman which Mm -hmm. you know you get that from a third round pick that's huge Okay, we've had an hour
0: and a half of Canucks talk and hockey talk on the Halford & Bruff Show. We're going to take a little break, talk a little NFL with Mike Tannier coming up next on Sportsnet 650.
2: The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Dranz. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd filling in for Mike Halford. Halford and Bruff Brough brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Also brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling, Vancouver's premier metal recycler. Pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Eleven Seventy Powell Street, 650-650-650. Uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, joining us right now on the line from The Messenger, he is Mike Tannier, our Monday morning quarterback, brought to you by the Clayton Public House. Pre-game to post-game, the Clayton Public House is your home of football. Catch all the action on 15 screens and two giant projectors, theclaytonpub.com. Uh, good morning, Mike. Thanks for doing this. How are you?
2: I am tired. So very, 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 very tired.
0: Um, what are unders this week? Because it feels like uh, every game that I've watched has been a defensive battle.
2: Lots lots of unders. And, and I, I had a couple overs this week that I am not happy about. I had over in Vikings-Bears thinking this was going to be silly recess time, you know, kindergarten playground, pick sixes, and <laughs> long touchdowns and stuff like that. They went under like it was their job to go under. I thought that the uh, – Actually, I, the the Browns and Forty ers wound up going over my number at the end. Unfortunately, I took the Niners in that game, <laughs> so it, it was, you know, what there's been. There's been a lot of a lot of interceptions, a lot of fumbles, a lot of turnovers, and you throw in, you know, some things like goal line stands, fourth quarter, the you know, fourth down stops. Seahawks experienced a few of those yesterday. Mm-hmm. They contributed to the uh, to the underwhelming. <laughs> offensive performances as well.
0: It was funny that Bengals Seahawks game a lot of people watching that game were like this is an ugly game and then Pete Carroll in his post game press press conference was like that was a great football game today. Like he, he you know like that's that was Pete Carroll kind of kind of football and he was actually very positive because his defense did play well. But I think right. the questions about Geno Smith are going to continue because the Seahawks are improving defensively and they do have some pretty good um, receiving options. And I think the question that people are asking in Seattle like, is just, is Geno Smith good enough to make them Super Bowl contenders? Or how good would they have to be in all the other areas of their team to make Geno Smith a quarterback that could get them over the hump?
2: Oh, that's a tough question. And, you know, did you see the Geno Smith upside like weeks 1 to 10 last year? You know, you're not talking about a 22-year-old who has, like, hidden talents. You might have seen the best of him when he was catching opponents by surprise a little mm. bit and and just, you know, in the comeback player of the year uh, situation. And I, I think you're right. Like It's not like the, the Seahawks couldn't move the ball yesterday. I mean, they moved the ball pretty well in general. know delivered some big plays. He was getting them into the red zone at the end. And you see how maxed out they are because of sort of his limitations, taking sacks in those situations, having to throw the ball away. Um, you know, the turnovers obviously a part of that as well. In answer to your question, you know, you with Geno Smith as your quarterback, you have to max out everything to be a Super Bowl team. Not a playoff team. You can be a playoff team the way you are now mm-hmm. as a Super Bowl team. Uh, and the only thing I can tell you about that is there are about, you know, 25 other teams in the NFL in the same boat looking at the same situation. Geno's under a longer contract than some of their quarterbacks, but th- that's the reality that you're facing right now in Seattle.
0: It's a tough situation to be in, too. I mean, it's not the worst situation. I think there's a lot of things no. to be excited about with the Seahawks, but the question is, like, if you determine that Geno's not the guy that's going to get you, how are you going to get that guy? Because you're not going to be drafting third, fourth, or first, or second.
2: Right. And you can take heart in the things that, well, Brock Purdy is a human doing very well. Jalen hurts who was a second round pick is a guy who's doing well. You know, you can get a Dak Prescott in the third round. If you're, if you due diligence and you can develop these guys, if the other things are clicking, if your offensive line is sharp, if you keep your receiving core intact, uh, your defense is sharp, et cetera, you can develop some of these guys, but you know, that's a question that you have to answer. Uh, I have a friend who says, you know, the worst quarterback you can have is the guy who's just good enough that you don't want to replace him. Right. You know, yeah, that, yeah, that, That's that Kirk Cousins, that's, Derek Carr, mm-hmm. all of that, yep. like, like, like Garoppolo for years. Don't want to replace him, comfortable with where you're at. Geno Smith is kind of going to fall into that category. So, so it's going to be a tricky
0: situation for the Seahawks. Yeah, I think of Ryan Tannehill when, when that question yeah. comes up. Um, you mentioned Brock Purdy, not a great Day for him, although he did do enough to put the 49ers into field goal range, they should have beaten the Browns, but they didn't. What was the story for you from that game? Was it the 49ers actually losing a game and losing some key players? Debo and Christian McCaffrey on offense? Was it Brock Purdy's performance, or was it the Cleveland Browns' defensive performance?
2: Well, the Browns' defensive performance are a big part of this, and you have to keep an eye on this team. If a Deshaun Watson decides to come back and play and B he plays at the level that we keep waiting and talking about and thinking that we saw many years ago was that a mirage was that just that we weren't really paying close attention to the Texans or was he that good so the Browns defense is that good you, you know it, we shouldn't be surprised for a Purdy backsl- backslide he was playing absolutely lights out you know above the level that uh, that any quarterback can really sustain in the last couple weeks and uh, you get Debo out of the game early, McCaffrey out of the game early. Trent Williams was out for a while. He came back. And and you're going to have games like this. So, uh, you know, we'll probably talk about the Eagles, too, and I'll, I'll make it up when we get there. The main thing to take away is McCaffrey's health. Debo's health looks like he's going to be okay. He tends to be in and out of the lineup a little anyway. McCaffrey's health, because it was a big difference. Going from McCaffrey to the third stringer who's back, him up because Mitchell was hurt. And that's something that the 49ers could get themselves in trouble with if they have to count on, the, uh, count on a backup running back for the next couple of weeks.
0: I think I'm actually cheering for the New York Jets now. Like, I've never had any affinity for them. Um, they're in a different conference from the Seahawks. But, like, I think what they've done is pretty admirable. And this is coming from a guy that was like, they have to do something. They cannot keep Zach Wilson in there. They have to do something. They haven't. But, but. now they're 3-3, three and three, and that defense is legit
2: defense is legit playing without their sauce, Gardner and uh, DJ Reed yesterday. And managed to get all these turnovers against the Eagles. Eagles could move the ball pretty well. You get turnovers, uh, you know, because your defensive front is playing so well uh, because the backups in the secondary are playing well. This team enters the bye, And I know, I know how our industry works. I've already seen and heard like, Oh, if they brought in Kirk cousins, if they did, they brought in Jameis, whatever you want to bring in on this. Look at the Jets' schedule down the road. you got the Giants coming up after the bye. That's a potential win. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, Raiders, that's a potential win. Now we're at five. Uh, okay, Patriots in the end of the season. That's six. Then you get these teams like the Falcons. You beat the Falcons. You can beat the Chargers the way we see the Chargers play about half of their games. You can beat the Commanders down the stretch. You can put together nine wins with Zach Wilson handing off, distributing short passes, and just not doing anything foolish. You can get there, and I think that's what – Robert Soles thinks. I think that's what the organization thinks, and I think that's an admirable goal for this Jets team. Uh,
1: elsewhere in the AFC East, Mike, uh, the Patriots lose again to the Raiders. They're 1-5, in five, very unfamiliar position for Bill Belichick and the Patriots, and I've started to see people, one, ask the question, but also just make the point, like, one, is Bill Belichick on the hot seat? And if he's not, should he be because of the way that the Patriots are performing right now? It sounds ridiculous, but we're kind of coming to that point.
2: Any other coach would be on the hot seat, they'd be on the short list, et cetera, et cetera. Belichick deserves to be in a different category, both because of what he's accomplished and because of, like, his control power influence in that organization. He's not somebody where there's a GM who, you know, in the back room is talking to the owner and saying this, that, and the other thing. He's got an owner he's worked with for 20-some years, and Robert Kraft, who's probably not excited about going on a coach search. But I try to look at this, like, I look at the years where, like, legendary coaches get fired. And, like, I'll go back to Andy Reid in Philly. Mm. This looks a lot like Andy Reid's last year in Philly, where it's just it's not sustainable, it's not uh, attainable. Reid had a bunch of years sort of after, uh, you know, McNabb leaves, and he brings in Michael Vick, and he has all these other tricks up his sleeve, and he keeps getting the Eagles around the playoff mark, and then it just goes kablooey. And this kind of looks like the kablooey year, and it would be a great year for the the, uh, Patriots. And now they've got months to think about it, to start thinking in terms of, hey, can we do a graceful exit here? Can we ask for your mm. resignation? Uh, can, can we do this in a way that it doesn't feel like uh, something that just uh, embarrasses the whole organization? And I think we might be heading down that road.
0: Do you think he'd go to another organization or do you think he'd retire? he does uh, this is a man who has no other interests no other hobbies <laughs> he hasn't picked up pickleball or anything like that
2: he's like not going to pick up pickleball you yeah. know the the uh, us olympic committee is adding flag football i could see him trying to win an olympic gold medal uh, oh, so oh no man he, yeah he he'd rather like like become like the swimming coach or something like that like totally off the wall here because it's like it's more uh, established but This is a guy. You know, he will retire. He will resign, or he will be fired. The phone will ring. It will be the Chargers. It will be Jera. It will be. It'll be whoever. It'll be the Bears. It'll be a a member of the McCaskey family. And then we'll see what happens after that. Because obviously. Starting over might be good for Belichick. It might mm-hmm. have to wake him up a little bit and say, hey, you know what? I got to bring in a new GM. I got to bring in a new offensive coordinator. And you might get a different guy if he's rejuvenated a little bit. And I think that's a chance a lot of teams will be willing to take. So I know some unexpected things
0: have happened this year, like obviously the Aaron Rodgers injury to the Jets was, you know, people were surprised by that. But when you look at the standings, it, it actually it feels like it's been a pretty predictable year so far. The good teams are good, the mediocre teams are, you know, kind of mediocre, and the bad teams are bad. Who is the most surprising team for you, either in a good way or a bad way?
2: You know, a couple of weeks ago I was saying the Bengals but the Bengals are not, they're now 3-3, three and, three, and it's like, ah, your quarterback was injured and we're battling through along the way. So uh, the Patriots are a big surprise because, you know, I think we all look at them and say, yeah, they'll be 3-3, three and three. they'll mm. muck these wins out. Um, I'm going to go with the Giants, not because I'm surprised that they're playing poorly, but because of how poorly they're, they're playing. Obviously coming off of a spirited performance on Sunday night there, but I, I had no idea this was a team that was going to be non-competitive most weeks. Maybe they're shaking that off a little bit, but I think that the organization they put in the sound. I think the coaching staff is sound. I think they did a good job in the draft in recent years. And I'm just stunned that they go out there most weeks and it's a laughing stock and they're down by 21 points, and we're talking about firing everyone.
0: Yeah, when was the last time they scored a touchdown on offense?
2: I don't know. What I, <laughs> I, I was watching, I was just rewatching the Patriots game, and they got into the red zone, and I think Tony Romo or Nance says this is the first time in. in Three weeks they've been in the red zone. So I was like, <laughs> Welcome oh, to the
0: red zone, yeah. Giants. Do you have any idea what you're Love doing? It. Nope. Oof.
2: You know, hope you survived the experience. Yeah. So I, I don't remember. I you, I just I'm trying to picture a Giants touchdown right now, and all I, all that comes into my mind is Saquon before halftime, plunging into the line with no timeouts left. So I I don't remember. It can't be that long ago though. I think it might have been in week three against the
0: Niners. Well, who knows? um oh,
2: yeah.
0: Um what about Detroit? I, I didn't expect I, – I, I thought the Lions would be improved, and I was curious about them, but um, they, could be, they could be undefeated if they hadn't lost to the Seahawks in overtime. Did you think the, the Lions would be this good? Uh,
2: this good is surprising. Uh, I was uh, just – I'm getting ready to do a podcast with Aaron Schatz, the, uh, the creator of DVOA, and he was leaking some information. The Lions are the number two team in the NFL per analytics. Number two in the NFL, I believe the Dolphins are number one right now. No, the, excuse me, the 49ers are still number one right now. Then the Lions, ahead of the Dolphins, ahead of the Eagles. Um, and, you know, it's, it's surprising at that level, but it's not that surprising that they're 5-1. and one. And this is a team that if you looked at it before the season, you probably would have said, uh, they'll lose to the Chiefs, but then they've got all these other middleweights, the Seahawks, the Falcons, the Packers, the Panthers, the Buccaneers. They can win all of those games. So, so they beat the Chiefs, lost to the Seahawks, so it's mixed up. But that's who they are. It's really exciting to watch them grow because they're such a young team. They're so young on defense. They're so young you know, at, at the skill positions where you know, Jameson Williams makes his first big play of the year coming back yesterday. LaPorta is a, a rookie of the year candidate at tight end. And, and, and it's fun to see how far that team could go. And there's one other thing about the Lions, and I brought this up on another show. The Eagles have a murderer's row coming up. They've got the Bills and the Chiefs and everybody, and the 49ers. The 49ers have the Eagles. They've got all these other tough opponents coming up. You look at the Lions' schedule, there's almost nothing on it to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. They get the Cowboys in Week 17. That's like the toughest game coming down the road. It's a, and the Ravens next week are pretty tough. But there's a lot of Bears, two Bears games left, <laughs> the Raiders, the Broncos. This is a team that could go 13-4. and four and that would be they should throw a parade if that happens for the lions
1: speaking of surprising teams this year mike and i know you know they're not near the top of the league or anything but the houston texans win again yesterday they beat the saints they're 3 and 3 and i know you know the rookie qb uh, cj stroud didn't have a, a phenomenal game statistically yesterday yeah. but i know a lot of people are liking what he's doing in his rookie year and just when you look at where they were last year in the state of the roster again it's not 5 and 1 like the lions but 3 and 3 is a pretty impressive mark so far for the texans
2: Absolutely. And Stroud is is a very impressive rookie. I think people were trying to get ahead of the curve a little bit with him. Uh, And he didn't have a bad game yesterday. It just wasn't, wasn't phenomenal. It looked like a rookie managing a, a game. It's, it's just fundamental top to bottom. If you look at the talent on the roster, the talent doesn't look like it's there. You know, they're still a year or two away from having the pieces they need. But if you look at the coaching and the fundamentals and how they're blocking how they're managing games, how the defense is flying around. They do make some mistakes, but they're flying around making stops. They're avoiding penalties. They're doing all these things like that that demonstrate that this is a team that's now being coached properly by D'Amico Ryans. It's now being run properly by a professional front office that they didn't have in a couple of years. And that's exciting to see, and they're another team. They're going to buy. They're another team to come back. You know, They get the Panthers. They got the Cardinals down the road. This is, the Texans are a team that could wind up with nine wins, just by playing fundamentally sound football into growing into their, themselves as a young, rebuilding team. Mike, uh, it's
0: Cowboys and Chargers tonight on Monday Night Football. Um, who has the most pressure on them for this game?
2: It's got to be the Cowboys. The Chargers are the Chargers. They, they, they noodle around. They get to 9-8, and 10-7. They make the playoffs. It's like, hey, the Chargers do what they always do. I think Staley has a lot of pressure on him. But yeah. beyond that, it's the Cowboys. They, they, they've got an opportunity now to catch up. This is their game to catch up uh, to the 49ers, to the Eagles, and they absolutely have to make the most of it.
0: I was just wondering if like tonight will be the night that Staley gets the national glare on him if it doesn't go well for the Chargers. <laughs>
2: It could be. Yeah, usually Thursday night is the game where you do bad on Thursday night, and everyone's watching, and everyone's bored on Friday. So all of my colleagues are like on social media attacking you, and just you know, a lot of us tonight we're going to be too tired to do much. But that could be. It. And my plan is actually, I think I'm gonna take a nap and then wake up around like late third quarter uh, local time here here in Greater Philly to, to to watch that game because you know it's going to be a fourth quarter of who's going to make the bigger dumber mistake and i don't have an answer to that question (laughs) right
0: now i can't wait mike thanks for
1: joining us this week fun as always
2: always fun take care and enjoy your week guys that is
1: mike tannier from the messenger our uh, monday morning quarterback weighing in on uh, everything that happened in the nfl including yeah the two final undefeated teams going down uh, yesterday.
0: Uh, the Seahawks had, uh, an interesting game in Cincinnati. I was laughing because Pete Carroll was like, that was a great football game. That's and everyone, so, was like, everyone was like, it was like, that was a pretty ugly that football was game. Uh, Geno <laughs> Smith, uh, to his credit, um, took the blame for the loss. He said, I felt like the guys deserved to win today. Obviously I didn't do my best job today to get that done. So those are things that I put on myself. I lay it right at my feet, right on my shoulders. And I look forward to the next opportunity. Um, it's funny. Geno Smith, to me, I feel the same way about Geno Smith as I do as Vernon Adams of the BC Lions. Like, okay. I know they're capable of going out there mm-hmm. and playing well, but I don't trust them.
1: Right. Does that I, make and sense? To me, Geno is... I think I have a little more faith in Gino. Well, I guess the thing is he's still relatively new in Seattle, so it doesn't feel like – like Kirk Cousins, and Mike brought it up, is the ultimate example to me of – Good enough that you're not desperate for to replace him, but right. you're never winning anything with him. You yeah. know what I mean? And I guess I think I guess the difference with Gino is that this is still early in his second season as the starter. So maybe you haven't kind of like it, it doesn't feel as a, as long term as it does with Kirk Cousins or it did with, you know, Derek Carr or whoever mm-hmm. the other guys that we bring up, Ryan Tannehill. He might Gino's be in thirty-three. That category, Gino's thirty-three. Though. Oh no, I though, know, but right? I mean, like, like he just not... hasn't been. He hasn't been the starter. In no, Seattle, no, no. So you're not yeah, so yeah. used to like all his flaws and everything. You right. know what I mean? Where right. you're like, yeah, oh, right. Kirk, you did it again. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe he is in that tier though, right? Where it's like good enough to get you to the playoffs oh, some years. Hundred percent is, but not good enough to win a Super like, Bowl. Like the right.
0: Seahawks would have to have an unbelievable supporting team. cast, yeah. and and their defense isn't isn't improved very much. I've actually enjoyed watching their defense this season. I'm not yelling at the TV. They actually have some semblance of tackling ability, and they kind of look like they know what they're doing. So that's going to be an ongoing process. But whoever takes over for Geno, the big question is, like, when do you make that move? And also, how are you going to go out and get that quarterback? Do you remember with Russell Wilson Mm – He was, like, not a first-round draft Mm -hmm. pick. Was he a third-round pick? And then he kind of – I don't want to say he comes out of nowhere because people knew him in the college game. He played for Wisconsin, and, like, people people knew of Russell Wilson. But – he didn't have the same type of pressure or expectations that you know the first round picks this year. You're talking about C.J. Stroud, Bryce mm-hmm. Young, all those guys have on them, and so in, in that way, he kind of he kind of came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, the Seahawks were like, "Whoa, who is this guy? Like this guy, this could be the final piece of the puzzle." Because it feels like the Seahawks might be in a similar situation, right? Will they be looking for that final piece of the puzzle? if their defense is improved and they got all they they've made some really good draft picks so they've got some good young talent yeah. everywhere yeah it still needs to come together i uh, don't love the offensive line sometimes for the seahawks they've got some young guys that still need to learn but um
1: the secondary is legit like they've the like, secondary is yeah. very legit
0: right so i know we shouldn't just be trying to create like recreate the last team that won it all. Like you don't have to say follow the same pattern. We're guilty of doing that with the Canucks. Really? We're like, like, We're like can- we're like okay, Petey's Henrik. Uh, <laughs> I guess JT's Kessler. They're fiery Americans, you know. And you're like, let's not do this, guys. Like we don't have to it do doesn't it that have way. To be a carbon copy, but I do yeah. think it's like as 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 good a story as as Gino has been, and how unexpected he was. Like for me, at least. Prove me wrong, Gino, but like I don't see him as the guy that, that helps the Seahawks win the Super
1: Bowl. I wonder, uh, speaking of quarterbacks in the uh, Seattle area, uh, the Washington Huskies have a pretty good run right now. Michael Penix Jr. That's Penix with Penix. an X at the end. Yeah, Penix. <laughs> A-Dog always laughs at that.
0: I wouldn't draft him. He's got too much injury history. Yeah. Uh, look, like, but uh, the only is, thing is, I yeah. think...
1: He's not going to. If he to be, falls he, to the third round, well, maybe. I don't think third round, but like late first round is yeah. like, like totally a possibility, mm-hmm. right? And I think yes, the injury history is there, mm-hmm. but one of the re- that's one of the reasons he falls. But I think the upside and the talent is there. Like, the he talent looks at is the there. Those he makes, yeah. He has that talent to be not just a guy, or at least the potential to be not just a guy who kind of manages a decent team, but maybe can get you to another level above that.
0: Huskies are a top five team in the in the in the country. That
1: now. was an awesome. And we're not going to go deep on uh, no. That was football, an football awesome here. here. That was awesome, an awesome game, game. A yeah. really really fun game, and mm-hmm. I don't the know, Ducks should have won. They must be just be like, of, we should have uh, punted. We should have punted. Some of Oregon's decision making was yeah. interesting, but hey, it made for a great uh, a great spectacle to watch. Uh, Okay, coming up next
0: is Kevin Woodley, and we'll probably talk a lot about Casey DeSmith and what the Canucks have in this guy. Um, You know, he was a late addition to the Canucks. Um, I thought for most of the summer that the Canucks were really going to do it. They were going to head into this season knowing that they probably didn't want to play Thatcher Demko, you know, 75 games, but their backups were Silovs and maybe Spencer Martin. But the Canucks made the call and uh, they acquired this guy who he hasn't been a star in the NHL or anything like that, but he has NHL experience. Mm -hmm. He's like, he's established. And I think that was the thing that when you look at what happened last season with the Canucks and Thatcher Demko gets hurt and all of a sudden it's down to Spencer Martin and Colin Delia. And then you go to their hockey DB page or wherever you get your information for, you know, hockey players and you're like, "Oh, these guys have like a combined 20 games of NHL experience." I wonder why it's going so badly go for great. the Canucks, right? Yeah. Like the pressure on those guys was immense and, you know, Casey DeSmith so far um it's only been one game where he's been the starter, but it was a masterpiece that he had in Edmonton on Saturday. The guy battled so hard and the Canucks are battling harder in front of their goalies as well, which is helping. So we'll talk to Kevin Woodley about the goaltending for the Vancouver Canucks and maybe we'll go around uh, the NHL and talk about some of the other goaltending scenarios. You're listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.